Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're starting a two-week series today called Proof, uh, and what we're looking at is really today specifically one of the oldest questions in the universe, and that is the question of God's existence. The question, does God exist, and if so, can it be uh, proven? And that's really where the title of this series came from, and I'll talk more about that in just a second. And let me just kind of say something that you might think is controversial. Uh, God's existence cannot be proven, okay? I know, I know, a pastor saying this in church, it seems really weird, but scientifically hard science cannot prove God's existence. But for a person of faith then to just say, well, I just have faith, that's not quite good enough. Just to say, well, I just believe that God exists, that's not real. That's good. It's great that you believe God exists. Can I just tell you something? Demons believe that God exists, so you're in really good company. That's what Jesus said, right? Demons believe and tremble, right? Or uh, Jesus didn't say that, but uh, it's said about him. Uh, So, that's good, but is that good enough? So when you, so maybe in this room that would be good enough, but when you leave this room, that argument's not going to hold a lot of water for a lot of people, especially people who don't have that same faith value or, or faith life that you may have. So we're going to look at this week and next week is this basic idea of can Christians use logic and reason and even science to explain, strengthen, and defend their faith? I would say the answer to that is yes. Not only would I say Christians can use logic, reason, and even science to explain and defend their faith, I believe Christians should be able to do so. Now, it's not something that we talk a lot about in church, which is why we're going to talk about it today and then also uh, next week. Uh, And what we're going to do today is look at really three sort of classical arguments to try to show evidence as much as we can of God's existence. Next week, we're going to do something pretty cool. We're going to look at mainly Old Testament scriptures that predate scientific discovery. So next week, we're going to look at parts of scripture, parts of the Bible, where scientific things are explained before science ever knew that they existed or could explain them. God knows what he's doing, and he shows proof of that in this ancient text called the Bible. The way that things in nature and science and our bodies are explained in the Bible 3,000, 4,000 years ago, okay? Scientists have just now discovered in the last 1,000 years. And so it's just really cool. We're going to look at that next week. But today we're going to look at three sort of main arguments, if you will. Not to argue, but that's the, that's the word that you would use to try to show proof of God's existence. So we're getting this from, there was a 13th century um, Catholic priest named Thomas Aquinas, and he was also a scientist, okay? So you can see faith and science don't have to be polar opposites here, okay? So this, this Catholic priest, Thomas Aquinas, he studied science. That's what he did, 
Uh, and so he, he came up with these, what he called five proofs, which is where this idea of this series comes from, five proofs of God's existence. So these three that we're going to talk about today kind of distill those five into three major categories, because as I, as I studied, so here's, I got, I got a, a prop today. I want to look a little more official as I talk about science today. And so I'm going to wear, uh, yeah, Stephen the science guy, Exactly. So, and I even have pins here to look really official. I don't have a notepad or anything. Okay, so I studied a lot of science, guys, so I earned this jacket, okay? I earned this. I didn't buy it off Amazon. I did buy it off Amazon, but I also earned it because uh, I studied all kinds of things. And here's the deal. I'm not a science, like in school, I did not like science at all. Like math and science, no, I'm a history and like English language arts guy. That was where my brain went. Uh, but when I, now that I don't have to learn it, I enjoy learning about it. Can anybody else relate to that? Like when I, I love to audit a class in college because there's no pressure to actually learn anything or, you know, study to get a grade on a test or anything. So that's kind of how I am with, with science now as I love it because what it does for me as a person of faith is it strengthens my faith. It gives me more than a, oh, well, the Bible says so argument, which is great. I believe the Bible's true and accurate and sufficient, but it helps to know that things really work a certain way, not just because the Bible says so, but because God actually made it to work that way. And we can discover through learning about the world that he made how he did what he did and why he did what he did. So we're going to look at three, um, three main arguments about God's existence specifically. Um, and again, we're not going to get exhaustive here. This is not like a 12-week lecture, two hours long. We're not doing that. So we're going to kind of just scratch the surface of this idea of how God, how we, how we know, how much we can know that God exists. So the first argument here that we would look at is this argument that we would say argument from cause. The question is, how in the world did the world get here? And it's sort of, you think of a row of dominoes. So St. Thomas Aquinas, this 13th century theologian slash scientist, he, he, he argued against this idea of what he called infinite regress, so basically the idea is if you look at a row of dominoes and you knock one over, you have a cause and effect sort of thing. So one domino knocked over the other one, knocked over the other one. But he's saying with the way the universe is and the way that we knew it even 700 years ago when he was studying the, the planets and stars and everything and the earth, he was saying it can't go back forever and ever and ever without a cause, right? It has to have a starting point. And we would look at Scripture and say, well, yeah, of course, that's how even the Bible starts, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a starting point. Now, science up to that point, even science up to 100 years ago, said, well, the universe just goes on forever. It's infinite. There is no beginning point. It just has always existed and will always exist. Even Romans 1.20 says this, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky... Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So people of faith, specifically Hebrew slash Christian faith, even most other ancient religions had origin stories, right? So even like the simple religious people knew there has to be a beginning point. So this idea of infinite regress is it can't just go on and on and on and on forever in the past. There has to be a starting point. So it wasn't until about 1927 that modern science said, you know what, guys, I think you're right. 
So there was actually um, a Belgian scientist who also happened to be a Catholic priest. Do you see here? What's amazing is some of the greatest discoveries in science, in the world, in the universe are made by people of faith. It's only in the last 50, 60, 70 years or so that science has been hijacked by an anti-faith culture. Because for the most of the time before that, it was back and started and discovered by people of faith. Okay? Interesting. So, uh, this Belgian scientist slash theologian slash Catholic priest in 1927, in his study uh, of Einstein's theories, of all sorts of other things and calculations, and his own uh, knowledge of you know, the universe, he said, hey, I'm thinking here I can show mathematically, scientifically that there was a starting point. Well, this theory uh, wasn't named for about another 20 years, uh, and it became known as the Big Bang Theory. So a Catholic priest in 1927 discovered this, or came up with the Big Bang Theory. He didn't call it that. It didn't have a name, but that's what it became about 20 years later. We'll actually uh, briefly talk about the man who gave it that name, who's also another person of faith. It's weird, but it's true. So the problem here is that science until then had said, no, the, the universe is infinite, no beginning point. But his research, his conclusions were just showing yeah, you got something here. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, we see the logic, not just the faith component, not just the Bible says it or this ancient text says it, but yeah, we can. the numbers don't lie, right? And so for about 20 years until, about, until the time I got this title, science, modern science really rejected this theory, mainly because it showed evidence of what people of faith had said all along. We can't, no, 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 we can't agree with these simple-minded people. We can't agree with what these non-science people, these anti-science people say. That doesn't make any sense, but they couldn't refute what they saw as the evidence. And so they eventually uh, adopted that. And what's interesting is there was a switch, though, because, uh, again, people of faith came up with this. Even someone of faith named it this, kind of as a joke, but the idea is there of what they believed all along, but then when scientists and science got a hold of it, all of a sudden now the church flips, and they're like, no, no Big Bang. It's like, well, that's what Genesis 1-1 is saying, okay? And let me, let me just give you a couple of quotes here from scientists, at least one of whom is a, a deep person of faith, what they have to say about this idea of cause. There has to be a cause. No matter what you call it, it's still there. Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist, says this, Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, so like the name, Big Bang, you could just insert the word God in there, okay? But the essential elements and the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Another quote, Francis Collins, who actually uh, was the director of the Human Genome Project. Actually, I saw him on the news a couple weeks ago talking about coronavirus. So he's a real person. He really exists. He really believes in science. Okay, but he's also a deep person of faith. He says this, The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. That's that infinite regress idea. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. 
So the idea here is just because science gives it a different name doesn't mean it's not true or real. We know there was a beginning. You can call it what you want. You can explain it how you want, but we're coming to the same conclusion. I think that's a good starting point for this idea of faith, this discussion of faith. We have more of a level playing field. We have more uh, uh, agreement than we sometimes realize because we get so you know, tied up on what it's called or how it's explained. And we can talk through that. We can debate about that. We can work through those ideas and thoughts, but the conclusion is still there. And the idea that even St. Thomas Aquinas said is, if there is a cause, there must be a causer. That's what his argument was. If there was a start, there must be someone who starts it, someone who flicks the first domino in the row. There is a beginning, and there has to be someone outside of creation to start this whole thing. That's the argument. Even that science claims is true, although they don't want to give it a name of a person or a being. They just want to keep it uh, this theoretical idea. Okay? That's the argument from order. I think it's pretty compelling. Then we get a little bit deeper into this, and we have the second main argument for God's existence, and that's the idea of order. The idea of order. And we see this in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. It says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His, here's the key word, His craftsmanship. There's order. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Creation displays God's craftsmanship. There is an order, or another would be design. There is design to this universe. There is design to everything within the universe. If you want proof, let me show you this picture. This is a picture under a microscope. These are amoeba. Each one of these little things, microscopic things, are single-cell organisms. However, scientists tell us there is enough information and data in each one of these single-cell amoeba to fill 30 encyclopedias. That's order. That's design. I think there, there's, there's evidence of design here in the universe. A single-cell bacteria that you can't see except for under a microscope has enough data in it to fill 30 encyclopedias. That's pretty amazing. So we're going to get geeky for just a second. If we haven't already, because I'm up here, right? Uh, there's this idea within this uh, design order argument called the anthropic principle. And that's the idea of the universe being fine-tuned. It's not just that it just sort of went where it went or happened how it happened, but that everything must be in its place for a reason. Everything does what it does specifically for a reason. Even the makeup of our body molecularly, there's design to it. If one little thing is off, we are not what we are. Okay? One microscopic element of our body is off, and we have, you know, eight fingers, okay? which might be, you know, kind of cool. Give me a high eight, you know, I don't know, I'll just, you know, I don't know, whatever. So this idea of fine-tuning of the universe, and here's, what, here's an equation that sort of tells you really why this must be believed, I think, to be intellectually honest. So two ideas here. The number of atoms in the universe, in the entire universe, is 10 to the 70th power, so every, if you, I don't know how in the world they figure this out, but this is just what scientists tell us, okay? You just got to, if you haven't heard this on the news enough lately, just trust the science, okay? Trust the science, people. I'm in a lab coat from Amazon. No, I'm in a lab coat. You have to trust the science, okay? Every atom in the universe is 10 to the 70th power. 
The probability of the universe existing the way it does is 10 to the 138th power. That's 10 with 138 zeros behind it. Like, if you gave me those odds to win the lottery, I'm not playing, okay? It's just not worth the two bucks to play. I'm not going to win. Uh, but that's the idea here. So this seems impossible, right? And that's really what this shows. But there's a theory uh, called the uh, typewriting monkey theory. This is real. This is science. I, remember, I'm wearing a lab coat. I have credibility. There's this theory called the typewriting monkey theory where the theory states to basically explain this number, the impossibility of the universe, that it is possible, is saying, if an infinite number of monkeys typed on an infinite number of, of typewriters for infinity, eventually one of them would type completely and perfectly the complete works of William Shakespeare. That's the theory. That's 10 to the 138th power. If an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters type for infinity, eventually one of those monkeys would type completely and perfectly the complete works of William Shakespeare. Every comma is in the right spot. Every letter spelled, every word spelled correctly. It's spaced. It's perfect. So what's interesting is in 2003, uh, university in England tried this out. So what they did is they put a computer in a, a, a a zoo exhibit, a monkey exhibit in a zoo in England for a month. There were six monkeys in this exhibit. They put a computer in there for a month. And they, let's just see what happened. Let's just test this out. Uh, and this cost $2,000 to the taxpayers, by the way, so money well spent. <laughs> so they put this computer in there, and what they discovered was at the end of 30 days, uh, the monkeys had typed about five pages of text. Now, most of the text, if not almost all of the text, was just the letter S. And that's pretty much all they were typing. And that was only for a few days because the leader of this group, uh, who was so curious by this new thing, crushed it with a huge rock, and then the rest of the monkeys destroyed the computer. So that's what happened for this first, uh, you know, infinite typing monkey trial. So what we're saying is, the fact that we are where we are, that the universe exists the way it does, that we're, li we're living on this little, you know, dirt clod called Earth, it's pretty much impossible to have happened at all, and the way it's designed is nearly impossible to explain, and so it's, it, it cannot just be random chance that created all of this perfectly designed order in the universe. It can't be. Here's, here's what one, another astrophysicist says, Fred Hoyle. This is the man who actually is credited with giving the phrase, the, the Big Bang title to that theory in the late 1940s. He said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed around, no, no wordplay there, right? Has monkeyed around with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. He's saying there, there's a design here. And again, design must have a designer. Another quote from another person that you have probably heard of before is this. In his book, A Brief History of Time, he says this, If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. That was Stephen Hawking, who was not a Christian, okay? Not at all a Christian. Yet he, he has to, to have any credibility he has to make this claim. This could not just have happened, even like we claim it happened. He, he's even giving an, a, 
a hint there, there's got to be something else at work. So what scientists tell us about the Big Bang is that at least 112 events had to happen at the exact right time, in the exact right order, for the exact right length of time, within less than one second for the universe to be created. That's design. There's, that's order, right? If, there, if you don't have an argument for order, I just gave you one. 112 events had to happen in order for all of this to be how it is. So that's amazing enough, but let me just go one step further for just a couple minutes. Not only the creation of all this had to have order, but the way that it was created and the way it sustained means there must be design. There must be order. Let me just give you a few examples. Um, and this is really to explain that the conditions on this planet that we are alive, must have order, must have um, this order to it. So the earth is tilted on an axis of 23 and a half degrees. So we're not like this, we're sort of like this, okay? Uh, why is that important? Well, if, if, there were, if the earth did not have a tilt, there'd be no seasons. So basically, uh, you know, at best, only a small portion of the middle of the earth would be habitable by human life. And even then, uh, scientists estimate that without a tilt, it would just be constant rain in that equatorial region, constant flooding. So we can't plant crops to eat food, so we die out even if we could be born anyway. Even if we could live and survive in, with no tilt, we wouldn't live very long. And then the other argument is, what if we were on a 90-degree tilt? How, I mean, why has it got to be that, right, just 23 and a half? Why does it have to be that number? Um, so if we were on a 90-degree tilt, half the Earth's going to be an icy wasteland facing away from the sun at all times, and the other half is, is going to be some estimated somewhere between 175 and 212 degrees Fahrenheit at all times, which is the boiling point of water. Okay? So if we're tilted at a 90-degree angle, it doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And even at best, scientists say, because they want to give room, there's possibility here, even at best, on the hot side where, you know, water boils, some small bacteria may be able to survive for a little while at a time, at best. But we're not here, okay, because God made it this way, not this way. How about the rotation of the earth? So right now we're going at 1,000 miles an hour rotating. It's pretty fast. Uh, you're going to get a, a, a speeding citation on your way out today as your parting gift, Okay. Um, so rotating at 1,000 miles an hour, what if we increase that 100 miles an hour, 10%, 10%? We would have constant, super giant hurricanes at all times. It's going to speed everything up, even 10%. Uh, oh, and, and the whole, so what they're saying is the whole equatorial region is completely submerged underwater. Even all the way as south as northern Australia is going to be completely submerged underwater what if we doubled the speed of the rotation of the earth like what if god's like two thousand miles it's not fast enough you know here's what happens the whole earth would be flooded that's what's going to happen uh, scientists would say if the rotation of the earth were sped twice as fast only maybe the top of the tallest mountain peaks on earth would be barely visible at all the force of that would be too much what if the earth didn't rotate what if god's like i'm just going to put this ball here and just let it hang there for a while what's going to happen it's going to be similar to if we weren't tilted right it's there's going to it's going to be too hot and too cold for any human life to survive god there's a design there's an order to our planet how about the distance from the sun how many how anybody know how far we are away from the sun you got it 93 million miles now, it seems like a long way, doesn't it? And it is, but it's the perfect spot. So we're in what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. Not too far, not too close. We're just right for human life, okay? Now, we're barely in this, by the way, because 
if we were to be 1% closer to the sun, which is 930,000 miles, which that seems like a lot, right? 930 million miles is a long way. But our, just our galaxy alone is about four or 600 quadrillion miles wide. So we're talking about like you can't even tell there's movement, okay? So if we were 1% closer to the sun than we are, we're crispy critters. So actually, we're not even able to be crispy critters. There's no life possible. So basically, whatever water would be on this planet would boil until it evaporates, and then we got a scorched earth situation on our hands. 1% closer. This doesn't work. And we have some room to go backward, but any more than about 10 to 15%, and we're sort of an ice, an ice planet. Not ice, but too cold. Because, for instance, Mars, our next neighbor out, their average temperature is about negative 81 degrees. So, you know, even on a hot day, we're not going to make it. And so even moving back, you know, slightly doesn't make this happen. Also, the distance from the moon keeps water doing what it does, tides moving in and out. Also, the gravitational pull of the earth is where we are in respect to the moon because scientists say, you know, our earth's kind of wanting to tilt more and the moon is keeping it from doing that. If the moon's further away, we're going to tilt too far. It's not going to work. If the moon's too close, we're going to be too upright. It's not going to work. We are just far enough from everything else for this to happen, right? You might say, well, could we get a little bit closer to the earth than that so you're not here? I get it. But anyway, so there's order. There's design. And I'm not, I didn't quote one Bible verse just now, right? I'm quoting respected, normal, scientific data and evidence. The question, though, is could this have been random chance? Even scientists are like, oh, you know, I don't want to say yes and I don't want to say no, but there has to be a design. And if there's a design, then like St. Thomas Aquinas would say, there must be a designer. Like anything else, anything else that you have, someone designed this amazing, authentic uh, jacket here, uh, I don't know where it was made, but I don't even want to know right now where it was made. Don't say it! Uh, don't say it! <laughs> um, it probably was. Anyway, someone designed it, right? They drew it out. They measured it. They, someone made the fabric. Someone sewed it together. It, there's a design and an order to everything, which means there must be a designer and someone who gives that order. The third argument I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, uh, but... I, I could spend the most time on this one, so I'm going to refrain myself and just go over this pretty quickly. The third main argument about God's existence is this idea of morality. Uh, and so what we've talked about so far is physical, like hard science. This argument of morality is more what, what we would call metaphysical, right? Hard science can't explain feelings or emotions or certain things in, in our, even in our brain, like psychology is a soft science, it's like, you know, th those types of things. Sociology is a soft science. Uh, and so morality falls in that category, but I still think there is, there is some evidence to point to a, a lawgiver because we have law, okay? So that's the main question is why, can you explain why we are moral creatures? Why are we the only form of life we know of that are moral by nature? Why is that? Is there a gene inside of us that makes us that way? We haven't discovered that yet. So if we do, this becomes a little murkier to get through. But as of now, there is not that we know a gene that makes us a moral creature. And the main idea is, is there objective morality? Okay, that's the main question. Uh, and as much as modern 
uh, culture wants to say that there is not, right? What works for me works for me. What works for you works for you. My truth, your truth, everybody's got a truth, you know, like the hokey pokey of morality here. Um, we really typically don't actually live that way. Like, it's fun to say, I believe, we do that when it benefits us. So, I believe everyone should be, you know, treated the same unless I can get treated differently and I get an advantage. Then it's, then it's subjective. So typically we live as if there is objective morality, even though um, we don't always want to say that, that there is. And so even the question with that is, I'm getting off, I'm getting a little too out there, but here, here we go. Just bear with me for a couple more minutes, okay? Um, even with, even with subjective morality, what works for you is good for you, what works for me, works for me, I would say, okay, well, what standard do you base that off of and from what authority do you get that standard? That's the problem with morality, is if there's not one standard and one authority, then where, where do you get yours from and why is it better than mine or why should I uh, listen to what you have to say based on your subjective viewpoint? So that's the, that's the issue. And if there is objective morality, who or what is the standard of that? And we believe that if there are laws, there is a law giver. Um, even, even more than that, if we get off this really quickly, even more than that is why do we give of ourselves to others? It's this idea of altruism. Why do I sacrifice myself for someone else when it costs me something? So I might, you know, help this person across the street while there's a car coming at risk to myself why why do why do you know like soldiers jump on grenades to save their their friends why do we because nature doesn't behave that way even this idea of of uh, evolution the survival of the fittest doesn't that doesn't happen anywhere else only in humans is morality even considered to be part of their makeup why is that why have we been made in that way if not because there is a moral law giver. And again, that's all I'm going to say about that, because I could spend several weeks on that topic, but I think we're all ready to go home. So i got two closing thoughts, uh, and, then, and, then, and then we'll be done. Here, here's the point, though. The idea is, why does this make any difference at all? Who cares if, if it's faith, if it's science, or if it's Big Bang, or if it's, like, why does it matter if I can have these conversations? Why does it matter if I try to have an understanding of how the world works? What's the point? Uh, or what do I do with it? What does that mean? So here's two thoughts as we close today. The first one is this. If you think that you can have God figured out or that you do have God figured out, there's two options. Either you're mistaken or you found the wrong God. That's just how it is. God cannot be fully explained. We should search him. We should seek him. We should learn to know him, learn more about him. But he can never be fully and completely known. So as much, and that's, you go back to Genesis, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Let's build this tower up to God. We're going to learn everything. We're going to like reach, literally touch the face of God. God's like, no, 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 that's not possible. I'm going to crush that idea. I'm going to scatter you everywhere because that's not I'm bigger than you. I know more than you. I'm greater. This this idea of transcendence. God is transcendent. He's above and beyond anything that we can know or grasp or understand or learn or explain. So there are times where people of faith have to say, I don't know, and that's okay. There are times when people of science, and that's what science is. Science is a really big discussion of I don't know. So let's learn more about that. Well, I don't know. Let's try to learn that. Well, I don't know. Let's try to talk through this. That's all this is. We're saying the same thing, just in a totally different way. 
and that's another, another part of God's design of us is that we try to learn and we try to grow. Uh, we try to expand. Uh, that's, the, that's really the beauty of who God is. He can't be understood completely. Here's the second thought um, as we leave today, and that's this. There is a significant difference between acknowledging God and accepting God. So much of what we talked about today is acknowledging his existence. Again, that's great. That's a good starting point. There's a lot of you know, room we can work with that. It's a great place to be. But the idea of God is not just to know about him, but to know him, right? He's experiential. It's not just head knowledge, but it's heart knowledge is what we would say. It's this experiential nature. That, that's what God desires. It's what he wants. God doesn't just exist but we want to experience him. And in the same way, we don't just want to exist, but we want to know why we exist. It's all about purpose. It's, about that, it's part of that design factor. So let me just say this. You were made to give God glory. Okay, That's the point of our creation. God, God made us not because he needed us, because he decided to show off. That's the whole point of any of this. God was just fine when it was just him and nothingness. Like pre-Genesis 1-1, Father, Son, Spirit, they're totally fine, just the three of them hanging out in one, okay? And then they decide, let's, get, let's, get, let's put our sleeves up and let's make some stuff just because we want to. That, that's, that's pretty cool to consider that. Uh, the other thing is you, you are made on purpose for a purpose, you were made by a grand designer for a grand design. You're not just, you know, oh, happenstance of the universe. You're not just like a 10 and 138th power sort of, oh, it's, you know, that's great. No, it's like God put this, he knit this thing together. He's, it's a huge puzzle that he's just, you know, had fun filling in and do, doing his thing on purpose for a purpose. The designer with the design, which you are part of and which you specifically, personally, individually have. You have purpose, you have design. And then we get to God, the, the morality issue. We've all broken God's moral law, and so what God does is he reveals himself to us more fully by rescuing us, okay, through his son, Jesus. And that, that's the, again, the, the real beauty of God is that the creation rebelled against the creator, and the creator still thought we were worth enough to redeem. We were worth enough to save. Now, it's nothing to do with us, so it's not like, yeah, I'm a big deal, you know, because God saved me. It's like, no, 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 that's how great God is. He could just like, and the whole universe is, is just over. But instead, he reaches way down through the universe to our galaxy, to our planet, to each one of our hearts that incline to him, and he says, yep, I'll take you. You're mine. That's awesome. Let's, let's do this thing forever and ever. That's amazing. You're not an accident. You're not a science experiment. You're not, you know, your happenstance thing. God designed you for a purpose, on purpose. He designed you specifically how you want it, and he has a plan for your life. And the whole point of God is, hey, will you do this thing with me? Because I kind of know what I'm doing. I kind of made all of this stuff exactly how it needs to be made, and I want you to be part of this plan. It's an amazing God that we serve, a big God, an amazing uh, God of the universe uh, that we can call Father.